Like most people, I like receiving letters or emails, especially, I don't mean junk mail, but personal letters. You know the ones that are written nicely with ink and you say, who's this from? Experts tell us that what comes last in a letter is often the most significant thing. Here's some demo models for you. Dear Mum, sorry I've not been in touch recently. I'm fine, so is the dog. Got promoted at work and have gone vegan. I'm coming into the area next weekend, so we'll drop in and see you if that's okay. Yours, Oliver. P.S. I'm bringing my wife with me. She's called Linda. I do hope you like her. (laughs) Or, dear parents, university is fine. I've settled in well and found some good friends. I've joined the badminton team and my first assignment got decent marks. Please write soon. Love, Geraldine. P.S. Can you please enclose a decent check with your letter? Or finally, Gary. Sorry we argued. We just don't seem to communicate very well sometimes. I occasionally wonder if it's worth it. What do you think? Jean. P.S. I do think it's worth it. Jay. The, the P.S., the postscript of a letter or a form of communication is sometimes very, very important. And that's what we have in effect in the passage that was just read to us in the book of Galatians. Paul often dictated his letters, as most professional people did in the ancient world. He would have a scribe secretary who would be allocated to him, and he would speak and the professional scribe would write down what he, what he spoke. A bit like modern-day dictation. But then he would, as he does here, sign the letter, and on this case, add a postscript on it. Why sign it? Well, probably because with his mark on it, there's some sort of guarantee of authenticity. And we know how quite quickly in the Christian era all sorts of letters were being circulated, some of which purported to be from the apostles, which were probably never from the apostles. See what large letters I write, he says. And perhaps it was simply that Paul was no scribe and his writing wasn't much to look at. Or perhaps his eyesight was poor. But some people, in writing learned tomes, have suggested that there are more intriguing reasons for these large letters. Perhaps he was deliberately using large and ungainly letters to make a very specific point. I'm using babyish writing to remind you all that you're still babies and you need to grow up. Or perhaps the letters are large, and many people think this, 
Because Paul wants us to see, us the readers, to see them as emboldened, as underlined. For emphasis, to stand out. These are the important things. Well, where are we? Postscripts often contain important things, and this postscript draws attention to itself because it's by Paul's own hand and hints, he hints that it's significant. So tonight I just thought that we'd look at these words that he ends this epistle with. We've got to understand, though, something of the context And the context finds its way into the the text, but it lurks behind the whole of the book of, of Galatians. And that is that Paul is at pains to contrast his own ministry and particularly some of the beliefs he has and writes about with those with a group who are loosely known as the Judaizers. And the Judaizers are effectively a group of people maybe Jews by birth, maybe not, who believe that, put very simply, in order to become a follower of Christ, you have first to become a Jew. And so all the laws and all the practices and rituals of Judaism must be fulfilled, and then, if you like, you tag on onto that established Jewish corpus of practice, the belief in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And Paul makes it quite clear that he disputes profoundly with this belief and the practices of the Judaizers. They are, if you like, part of the mad, bad and sad party that Tony was talking about, those of you who were here this morning. Because actually Paul has a very torrid pastoral time with them. Not only are they writing to people... But they also turn up from time to time and no doubt heckle during his sermons, which none of you are going to do this evening, are you? (laughs) But but he has this kind of dialogue with them. This is not just two people and a dog somewhere. This is an organized, orchestrated group of people who are writing letters themselves to the people in Galatia saying, don't take any notice of that guy. He is loot de loot. He's got some weird ideas. We have the proper doctrines of the faith we will tell you how to become Christians and actually it consists of this and this and this and this and Paul says see what large letters I write this is my gospel so that's the kind of context Paul here is at pains to make out clearly what his own ministry is about, what its essence is, what, as far as Paul is regarded, uh, thinks, is the fundamental of his faith. So there can be no mistake about it. And there are basically two things. The first issue that in this postscript, Paul clearly regards as fundamental to Christian faith is this, or it can be put like this. Is the essence of the Christian religion, the following of Christ, if you like, is the essence of the Christian religion outward or inward? That is, is following the way of Christ essentially about outward ceremonies and rituals, 
or inward spirituality. And Paul wants to argue that it's more the second than the first. Or put even more subtly, it is essentially the the second, and after that, the first then takes some significance. The Judaizers who opposed a maligned Paul stressed the need for circumcision. And incidentally, although it's not written here, in women, a form of baptism. Indeed, earlier, he refers to them as the circumcision party. They not only state, we are circumcised, and they may have been Jews by birth or not, as I said, but they then go on to say, and any other person who makes a decision to be a follower of the Christ, the Messiah, they need to be circumcised too. The big council in Acts 15 that uh, James and Peter and Paul attend, they got very hot under the collar about the fundamental question, how much inherited Jewish faith is required before you can become a Christian believer? And you've got that issue right here in the epistle to the Galatians. Paul is scorning of the whole thing about circumcision and the way in which the Judaizers are presenting it. Now, we must not forget that Paul is a Jew by birth. Not only that, he's a pretty well-versed Jew, a Pharisee in the law. He's a devout Jewish man. He knows the meaning of circumcision in the Jewish tradition how it's a sign of the covenant between God and Israel made by God through Abraham and his descendants. Paul is not saying circumcision is meaningless, but he's contending for the view, if you're resting everything of significance on that, you're resting it in the wrong place. It won't stand the weight you're putting on it. A bodily operation can never of itself secure, for instance, the salvation of the soul. Many centuries later, Protestants would contend much the same about a Western Catholic late medieval view of the sacraments. Say, for instance, the sacrament of Holy Communion, the Mass. Some stated that by the very doing of the sacrament of the Mass it became efficacious, it became a saving sacrament. And they used a Latin phrase, ex opere operato, by the deed done. By the very words said, by the very actions done, this becomes real, if you like. And of course, one of the things that the early reformers, Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, uh, certainly uh, people like uh, Ulrich Zwingli and uh, John Calvin, They took great exception to that. They said, you are making the grace of God into a kind of magical thing. You say the right things and the spell and hey presto. You've got to get beyond the ritual, beyond the words, beyond the sense of magic. There is no such thing that automatically produces saving grace. Only God does that. But I leap ahead of myself. In every age, 
We invest great significance in outward and physical rituals. Why? Because outward actions are deeply effective in giving expression to what we feel inside. But every age also knows the constant battle not to make the physical or symbolic rituals the things themselves. But we do it. Unless you're filled with the Spirit and you have the gift of healing or you speak in tongues like this, then you're clearly not saved. Unless you come to our church and believe what we do and sing our hymns, there's no hope for you. Unless you're baptized in this way, using these words, in this manner, it doesn't count and you'll never be received by God. How subtly we use outward expressions and put them in the place of the inward spiritual reality. So just by putting a tracksuit on doesn't make you an athlete. Just by wearing a mortarboard, you don't suddenly become highly intellectual. And it was Billy Graham who used to remind his hearers that you can live in a garage for as long as you like, but you won't turn into a car. (laughs) Ultimately, when we get right back to basics, external actions, even deeply holy and sanctified external actions, like bread and wine and the water of baptism, Do not replace the need for a work of the Spirit inside. The work of God in the mind and the heart. So if circumcision or any other external thing cannot make you a Christian, Paul goes on to suggest what can. Paul gets to this in verse 15. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but a new creation. What matters ultimately is not whether a person has been circumcised or baptized, but whether they have been made a new creation, whether they've been born again, to use Paul's language, and incidentally a repeated language of John Wesley. Which ironically, and here's the flip, isn't it? Which is ironically, much of what circumcision and baptism are meant to signify. When writing to the Romans, Paul said that the circumcision of the body was meant to be a sign of circumcision of the heart. That's when it becomes truly symbolic. But when the symbol becomes the reality, you're left with something that falls through your fingers. So the symbol and the reality symbolized are linked together, but it's the reality that's the indispensable point, says Paul. Last example. When John Wesley preached and called people to conversion in the crowds of England... One of the things that people said when he made the call, you must be born again, you must turn to Christ, they used to shout from the crowds, we are already born again. And at first it seems that he sort of fell for this and said, hallelujah. But then he he suddenly realized that a lot of them were people 
who said, yeah, we were born again because we were baptised as infants, and at our baptism in the church, people said, you are now washed clean of your sins, you are made regenerate, you are now born anew. So we've got no need to do it because it happened in our baptism. And John Wesley then came out with some wonderful lines. He said this, and it's an intriguing one, and we'll spend another Sunday evening in these kind of sermons dealing with this one. So we'll just say it and then park it. John Wesley said, who doubts that you were born again? So interestingly, he doesn't dispute that they were born again as infants in baptism. Who doubts that you were born again? But now I tell you, you must be born again, again. Why? Because they knew what sin was by now. In every generation, in our generation, in our hearts and minds today, we are prone to make the mistake of every generation of our forebears. We act and speak as if our faith was essentially based on external things. We know the truth that Isaiah spoke so long ago when he said, This people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. True Christianity is filled with ritual and symbolism. But it is first and foremost about internal renewal, about being made new by God. How then are we to be made new? How are we to become Christians? And here Paul moves to the second main theme of our reading this evening. And he puts the second issue almost like this. So is the essence of Christian faith a human thing or a divine thing? Or put more simply, is it a matter of what we do or is it a matter of what God does? And he contends again with a slight subtlety that it's first and foremost what God does, but then will remind us that once God has done it, we have responsibilities. But that's the order in which it must happen. As far as Paul is concerned, the Judaizers, who are messing up his ministry, are wrong not simply because they place too much emphasis on conversion as an external thing, but they're also wrong because effectively it's a human work. It's something that we do. They emphasize circumcision, he said, and by it say, now you're obedient to the law. And by obedience to the law, you are therefore accepted by God. God will give you and grant you all the promises of his inheritance. And Paul's not having any of this at all. Even if this were true, he says, with a typical piece of Pauline logic, even if this were true that we fulfilled the law, it'd be no good to you lot because you lot don't keep the law. All this emphasis, he says, on a human sign is effectively to try and save yourself. You 
prop up the law, you tell us that circumcision is an illustration of the law and through it you'll be saved. And guess what? Who administers the law and the action and circumcision? You do. But you miss the key thing, says Paul, which lies at the heart of Christianity, that actually you are sinners in spite of the law and in spite of your circumcision. And you cannot save yourselves any more than you can pull yourselves off the floor by your own bootstraps. But Jesus Christ, he says, died for sinners on a cross and that is the means of salvation. And you find it over and over and over and over again in Paul. If we could be forgiven he argues, by keeping the law or by being circumcised or being baptized, there will be no need for a cross on which Christ dies. There will be no need for the Son of God to lay down his life for the sins of the world and for our sins. There's a story of Constantine, the first so-called Christian emperor. His statue stands outside York Minster with the inscription underneath that that's where he was when he was called and got a sense to go back to Rome because of the death of a relative to inherit the emperorship. And it was while he was on his way back on the long trek there that so story has it he became converted by seeing the shining cross and all the rest of it. Scholars have debated long and hard whether or not Constantine was truly converted to be a Christian or whether it was simple political expediency. Tonight, let's assume he was soundly, roundly and properly converted, as the legend assumes he was. Constantine comes to the pearly gates of heaven and knocks. Who's there, says a voice. Constantine, he says, Emperor of all Rome, Lord of all the surrounding lands, leader of the Senate and conqueror of the world. And there's silence from behind the gates of heaven and then a voice. We do not know him. So he knocks again and again a voice says, who is there? Constantine, leader of Rome, head of the Senate, father of a family and benefactor of the poor. Silence. And then a voice. We do not know him. So he knocks a third time and a voice from behind the gates of heaven says, who is there? And Constantine was not all that dim. Constantine. A sinner saved by grace through the love of God in the death of Christ his son. Silence. And then a voice. Welcome. Enter into the glory of the Lord. There is nothing in all the world that is a greater leveler of human beings than the cross of Jesus Christ. So, of course, some people don't like it. They didn't like it when they were Judaizers. They don't like it now. 
Seeing ourselves as God sees us is a deep shock before it's a hope of mercy. So we steer clear of the cross or create a crossless Christianity. The charge against so many liberal theologians in the 19th century. You create a gospel that looks increasingly like you have looked in a mirror and we see your own face staring back at us. Or we hide even behind rituals, holy rituals, like doing good things or even going to church. There's a good hiding place from God. Paul takes us to the criticality of the cross of Christ. This is where any pride we have is placed. You can't boast in yourself, he says. You can only boast in what Christ in God has done for you. You become a Christian not by external actions, but by accepting what God and only God can do and do for you. And like all things that you can't get for yourself and that can't be bought or brought about by bribery, the only way you can receive it is to ask for it. You say to the Lord Jesus Christ, says Paul, I cannot save myself, only you can do that. Come to me and make me new. And the testimony of Paul and countless Christians down the ages, right down to us, testify that when we reach that place, Jesus reaches down to us and draws us to himself. And the essence of true faith is begun. And incidentally, a life full of rituals and symbols but ones that find their proper place within the essentials of Christianity, which is essentially internal and must be done by God for us rather than believing we can do it for ourselves. So P.S. Whatever you do, remember, says Paul, Christianity is essentially internal then external and it's essentially what God alone can do for you and then you learn what you can do for God. Amen.